0: It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. Come along as we examine UFOs, conspiracies, and all things strange. This week's episode, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward J. Ruppelt, Chapter 11, Part 1. Chapter 11, The Big Flap In early June 1952, Project Blue Book was operating according to the operational plan that had been set up in January 1952. It had taken six months to put the plan into effect. And to a person who has never been indoctrinated into the ways of the military, this may seem like a long time, but consult your nearest government worker and you'll find that it was about par for the red tape course. We had learned early in the project that about 60% of the reported UFOs were actually balloons, airplanes, or astronomical bodies viewed under unusual conditions. So our operational plan was set up to quickly weed out this type of report. This would give us more time to concentrate on the unknown cases. To weed out reports in which balloons, airplanes, and astronomical bodies were reported as UFOs, we utilized a flow of data that continually poured into Project Blue Book. We received position reports on all flights of the big skyhook balloons and, by merely picking up the telephone, we could get the details about the flight of any other research balloon or regularly scheduled weather balloon in the United States. The location of aircraft in an area where a UFO had been reported was usually checked by the intelligence officer who made the report, but we double-checked his findings by requesting the location of flights from CAA and military air bases. Astronomical almanacs and journals Star charts and data that we got from observatories furnished us with clues to UFOs that might be astronomical bodies. All of our investigations in this category of report were double checked by Project Bear's astronomer. Then we had our newspaper clipping file, which gave us many clues. Hydrographic bulletins and notums, notices to airmen, published by the government sometimes gave us other clues. Every six hours, we received a complete set of weather data. A dozen or more other sources of data that might shed some light on a reported UFO were continually being studied. To get all this information on balloons, aircraft, astronomical bodies, and what have you, I had to coordinate Project Blue Book's operational plan with the Air Force's Air Weather Service, Flight Service, Research and Development Command, and Air Defense Command with the Navy's Office of Naval Research, and the Aerology Branch of the Bureau of Aeronautics, and with the Civil Aeronautics Administration, Bureau of Standards, several Astronomical Observatories, and our own Project BEAR. Our entire operational plan was similar to a Model A Ford I had while I was in high school, Just about the time you would get one part working, another part would break down. When a report came through our screening process and still had the unknown tag on it, it went to the MO file, where we checked its characteristics against other reports. For example, on May 25th, we had a report from Randolph Air Force Base, Texas. It went through the screening process and came out unknown. It wasn't a balloon, airplane, or astronomical body. So then it went to the MO file. It was a flock of ducks reflecting the city lights. We knew that the Texas UFOs were ducks because our MO file showed that we had an identical report from Moorhead, Minnesota, and the UFOs at Moorhead were ducks. Radar reports that came into Blue Book went to the radar specialists of ATIC's electronics branch. Sifting through reams of data in search of the answers to the many reports that were pouring in each week required many hours of overtime work. But when a report came out with the final conclusion unknown, we were sure that it was unknown. To operate Project Blue Book, I had four officers, two airmen, and two civilians on my permanent staff. In addition, there were three scientists employed full-time on Project Bear, along with several others who worked part-time. In the Pentagon, Major Fournet, who had taken on the Blue Book liaison job as an extra duty, was now spending full-time on it. If you add to this the number of intelligence officers all over the world who were making preliminary investigations, and interviewing UFO observers, Project Blue Book was a sizable effort. Only the best reports we received could be personally investigated in the field by Project Blue Book personnel. The vast majority of the reports had to be evaluated on the basis of what the intelligence officer who had written the report had been able to uncover, or what data we could get by telephone or by mailing out a questionnaire our instructions for what to do before the blue book man arrives which had been printed in many service publications were beginning to pay off and the reports were continually getting more detailed the questionnaire we were using in june 1952 was the one that had recently been developed by project bear project bear along with the psychologists from a midwestern university had worked on it for 5 months Many test models had been tried before it reached its final form, the standard questionnaire that Blue Book is using today. It ran eight pages and had 68 questions, which were booby-trapped in a couple of places to give us a cross-check on the reliability of the reporter as an observer. We received quite a few questionnaires answered in such a way that it was obvious that the observer was drawing heavily on his imagination. From this standard questionnaire, the project worked up two more specialized types. One dealt with radar sightings of UFOs, the other with sightings made from airplanes. In Air Force terminology, a flap is a condition or situation or state of being of a group of people characterized by an advanced degree of confusion that has not quite yet reached panic proportions It can be brought on by any number of things, including the unexpected visit of an inspecting general, a major administrative reorganization, the arrival of a hot piece of intelligence information, or the dramatic entrance of a well-stacked female into an officer's club bar. In early June 1952, the Air Force was unknowingly in the initial stages of a flap, a flying saucer flap, the flying saucer flap of 1952. The situation had never been duplicated before, and it hasn't been duplicated since. All records for the number of UFO reports were not just broken, they were disintegrated. In 1948, 167 UFO reports had come into ATIC. This was considered a big year. In June 1952, we received 149. During the four years the Air Force had been in the UFO business, 615 reports had been collected. During the big flap, our incoming message log showed 717 reports. To anyone who had anything to do with flying saucers, the summer of 1952 was just one big swirl of UFO reports, hurried trips, midnight telephone calls, reports to the Pentagon, press interviews, and very little sleep. If you can pin down a date that the big flap started, it would probably be about June 1st, It was also on June 1st that we received a good report of a UFO that had been picked up on radar. June 1st was a Sunday, but I'd been at the office all day getting ready to go to Los Alamos the next day. About 5 p.m., the telephone rang and the operator told me that I had a long-distance call from California. My caller was the chief of a radar test section for Hughes Aircraft Company in Los Angeles, and he was very excited about a UFO he had to report. That morning, he and his test crew had been checking out a new late-model radar to get it ready for some tests they planned to run early Monday morning. To see if their set was functioning properly, they had been tracking jets in the Los Angeles area, About mid-morning, the Hughes test engineer told me, the jet traffic had begun to drop off, and they were about ready to close down their operation when one of the crew picked up a slow-moving target coming across the San Gabriel Mountains north of Los Angeles. He tracked the target for a few minutes and, from the speed and altitude, decided it was a DC-3. It was at 11,000 feet and traveling about 180 miles an hour toward Santa Monica. The operator was about ready to yell at the other crew members to shut off the set when he noticed something mighty odd. There was a big gap between the last and the rest of the regularly spaced bright spots on the radar scope. The man on the scope called the rest of the crew in because DC-3s just don't triple their speed. They watched the target as it made a turn and started to climb over Los Angeles. They plotted one, two, three, and then four points during the target's climb. Then one of the crew grabbed a slide rule. Whatever it was, it was climbing 35,000 feet per minute and traveling about 550 miles an hour in the process. Then as they watched the scope... The target leveled out for a few seconds, went into a high-speed dive, and again leveled out at 55,000 feet. When they lost the target, it was heading southeast somewhere near Riverside, California. During the sighting, my caller told me that when the UFO was only about 10 miles from the radar site, two of the crew had gone outside, but they couldn't see anything. But, he explained, Even the high-flying jets that they had been tracking hadn't been leaving vapor trails. The first thing I asked when the Hughes test engineer finished his story was if the radar set had been working properly. He said that as soon as the UFO had left the scope, they had run every possible check on the radar and it was okay. I was just about to ask my caller if the target might not have been some experimental airplane from Edwards Air Force Base, when he second-guessed me. He said that after sitting around looking at each other for about a minute, someone suggested that they call Edwards. They did, and Edwards Flight Operations told them that they had nothing in the area. I asked him about the weather. The target didn't look like a weather target was the answer. But just to be sure, the test crew had checked. One of his men was an electronics weather specialist, whom he had hired because of his knowledge of the idiosyncrasies of radar under certain weather conditions. This man had looked into the weather angle. He had gotten the latest weather data and checked it, but there wasn't the slightest indication of an inversion or any other weather that would cause a false target. Just before I hung up, I asked the man what he had thought. He and his crew had picked up. And once again, I got the same old answer. Yesterday, at this time, any of us would have argued for hours that flying saucers were a bunch of nonsense, but now, regardless of what you'll say about what we saw, it was something damned real. I thanked the man for calling and hung up. We couldn't make any more of an analysis of this report than had already been made. It was another unknown. I went over to the MO file and pulled out the stack of cards behind the tab high-speed climb. There must have been at least a hundred cards, each one representing a UFO report in which the reported object made a high-speed climb but this was the first time Radar had tracked a UFO during a climb. During the early part of June, Project Blue Book took another jump up on the organizational chart. A year before, the UFO project had consisted of one officer. It had risen from the one-man operation to a project within a group, then to a group, and now it was a section. Neither Project Sign nor the old Project Grudge had been higher than the project within a group level. The chief of a group normally calls for a lieutenant colonel, and since I was just a captain, this caused some consternation in the ranks. There was some talk about putting Lieutenant Colonel Ray Taylor of Colonel Dunn's staff in charge. Colonel Taylor was very much interested in UFOs. He had handled some of the press contacts prior to turning this function over to the Pentagon and had gone along with me on briefings, so he knew something about the project. But in the end, Colonel Donald Bauer, who was my division chief, decided rank be damned, and I stayed on as chief of Project Blue Book. The location within the organizational chart is always indicative of the importance placed upon a project. In June 1952, the Air Force was taking the UFO problem seriously. One of the reasons was that there were a lot of good UFO reports coming in from Korea. Fighter pilots reported seeing silver-colored spheres or disks on several occasions, and radar in Japan, Okinawa, and in Korea had tracked unidentified targets. In June, our situation map, on which we kept a plot of all our sightings, began to show an ever-so-slight trend toward reports beginning to bunch up on the east coast. We discussed this buildup, but we couldn't seem to find any explainable reason for it, so we decided that we'd better pay special attention to reports coming from the eastern states. I had this buildup of reports in mind one Sunday night, June 15 to be exact, when the OD at ATIC called me at home and said that we were getting a lot of reports from Virginia. Each report by itself wasn't too good, the OD told me, but together, they seemed to mean something. He suggested that I come out and take a good look at them, so I did. Individually, they weren't too good, but when I lined them up chronologically and plotted them on a map, they took the form of a hot report. At 3.40 p.m., a woman at Unionville, Virginia, had reported a very shiny object at high altitude. At 4.20 p.m., the operators of the CAA radio facility at Gordonsville, Virginia, had reported that they saw a round shiny object. It was southeast of their station or directly south of Unionville. At 4.25 p.m., The crew of an airliner northwest of Richmond, Virginia, reported a silver sphere at 11 o'clock high. At 4.43 p.m., a Marine pilot in a jet tried to intercept a round, shiny sphere south of Gordonsville. At 5.43 p.m., an Air Force T-33 jet tried to intercept a shiny sphere south of Gordonsville. He got above 35,000 feet, and the UFO was still far above him. At 7.35 p.m., many people in Blackstone, Virginia, about 80 miles south of Gordonsville, reported it. It was a round, shiny object with a golden glow, moving from north to south. By this time, radio commentators in central Virginia were giving a running account of the UFO's progress. At 7.59 p.m., The people in the CAA radio facility at Blackstone saw it. At 8 p.m., jets arrived from Langley Air Force Base to attempt to intercept it. But at 8.05 p.m., it disappeared. This was a good report because it was the first time we ever received a series of reports on the same object. And there was no doubt that all these people had reported the same object. Whatever it was... It wasn't moving too fast, because it had traveled only about 90 miles in 4 hours and 25 minutes. I was about ready to give up until morning and go home when my wife called. The local Associated Press man had called our home, and she assumed that it was about this sighting. She had just said that I was out, so he might not call the base. I decided that I'd better keep working, so I'd have the answer in time to keep the story out of the papers. A report like this could cause some excitement. The UFO obviously wasn't a planet because it was moving from north to south. And it was too slow to be an airplane. I called the Balloon Plotting Center at Lowry Air Force Base, where the tracks of the big skyhook balloons are plotted. But the only big balloons in the air were in the western United States, and they were all accounted for. It might have been a weather balloon. The wind charts showed that the high-altitude winds were blowing in different directions at different altitudes above 35,000 feet. So, there was no one flow of air that could have brought a balloon in from a certain area, And I knew that the UFO had to be higher than 35,000 feet because the T-33 jet had been this high and the UFO was still above it. The only thing to do was to check with all of the weather stations in the area. I called Richmond, Roanoke, several places in the vicinity of Washington, D.C., and four or five other weather stations. But all of their balloons were accounted for, and none had been anywhere close to the central part of Virginia. A balloon can travel only so far, so there was no sense in checking stations too far away from where the people had seen the UFO. But I took a chance and called Norfolk, Charleston, West Virginia, Altoona, Pennsylvania, and other stations within a 150-mile radius of Gordonsville and Blackstone. Nothing. I still thought it might be a balloon, so I started to call more stations. At Pittsburgh, I hit a lead. Their radio-zoned balloon had gone up to about 60,000 feet and evidently had sprung a slow leak because it had leveled off at that altitude. Normally, balloons go up till they burst at 80,000 or 90,000 feet. The weather forecaster at Pittsburgh said, that their records showed they had lost contact with the balloon when it was about 60 miles southeast of their station. He said that the winds at 60,000 feet were constant, so it shouldn't be too difficult to figure out where the balloon went after they had lost it. Things must be dull in Pittsburgh at 2 a.m. on Monday mornings because he offered to plot the course that the balloon probably took and call me back. In about 20 minutes, I got my call. It probably was their balloon, the forecaster said. Above 50,000 feet, there was a strong flow of air southeast from Pittsburgh, and this fed into a stronger southerly flow that was paralleling the Atlantic coast just east of the Appalachian Mountains. The balloon would have floated along in this flow of air like a log floating down a river. As close as he could estimate, he said, the balloon would arrive in Gordonsville, Blackstone area in the late afternoon or early evening. This was just about the time the UFO had arrived. Probably a balloon was good enough answer for me. The next morning at 8 a.m., Al Chop called from the Pentagon to tell me that people were crawling all over his desk wanting to know about a sighting in Virginia the reports continued to come in. At Walnut Lake, Michigan, a group of people with binoculars watched a soft white light go back and forth across the western sky for nearly an hour. A UFO paced an Air Force B-25 for 30 minutes in California. Both of these happened on June 18, and although we checked and rechecked them, they came out as unknowns. On June 19th, Radar at Goose Air Force Base in Newfoundland picked up some odd targets. The targets came across the scope, suddenly enlarged, and then became smaller again. One unofficial comment was that the object was flat or disc-shaped, and that the radar target had gotten bigger because the disc had banked in flight to present a greater reflecting surface. ATIC's official comment was weather. Goose Air Force Base was famous for unusual reports. In early UFO history, someone had taken a very unusual colored photo of a split cloud. The photographer had seen a huge ball of fire streak down through the sky and pass through a high layer of stratus clouds. As the fireball passed through the cloud, it cut out a perfect swath. The conclusion was that the fireball was a meteor. But the case is still one of the most interesting in the file because of the photograph. Then in early 1952, there was another good report from this area. It was an unknown. The incident started when the pilot of an Air Force C-54 transport radioed Goose Air Force Base and said that at 10.42 p.m., a large fireball had buzzed his airplane. It had come in from behind the C-54, and nobody had seen it until it was just off the left wing. The fireball was so big that the pilot said it looked as if it was only a few hundred feet away. The C-54 was 200 miles southwest, coming into Goose Air Force Base from Westover Air Force Base, Massachusetts, when the incident occurred. The base officer of the day who was also a pilot, happened to be in the flight operations office at Goose when the message came in and he overheard the report. He stepped outside, walked over to his command car, and told his driver about the radio message, so the driver got out and both of them looked toward the south. They searched the horizon for a few seconds, then suddenly they saw a light closing in from the southwest. Within a second, it was near the airfield. It had increased in size till it was as big as a golf ball at arm's length, and it looked like a big ball of fire. It was so low that both the O.D. and his driver dove under the command car because they were sure it was going to hit the airfield. When they turned and looked up, they saw the fireball make a 90-degree turn over the airfield and disappear into the northwest. The time was 10.47 p.m. The control tower operators saw the fireball too, but didn't agree with the O.D. and his driver on how low it was. They did think that it had made a 90-degree turn, and they didn't think it was a meteor. In the years they'd been in towers, they'd seen hundreds of meteors, but they'd never seen anything like this, they reported. And reports continued to pour into Project Blue Book. It was now not uncommon to get 10 or 11 wires in one day. If the letters reporting UFO sightings were counted, the total would rise to 20 or 30 a day. The majority of the reports that came in by wire could be classified as being good. They were reports made by reliable people, and they were full of details. Some were reports of balloons, airplanes, etc., but the percentage of unknowns hovered right around 22%. To describe and analyze each report, or even the unknowns, would require a book the size of an unabridged dictionary, so I am covering only the best and most representative cases. One day in mid-June, Colonel Dunn called me. He was leaving for Washington, and he wanted me to come in the next day to give a briefing at a meeting. By this time, I was taking these briefings as a matter of course." We usually gave the briefings to General Garland and a general from the Research and Development Board who passed the information on to General Samford, the Director of Intelligence. But this time, General Samford, some of the members of his staff, two Navy captains from the Office of Naval Intelligence, and some people I can't name were at the briefing. When I arrived in Washington... Major Fournet told me that the purpose of the meetings and my briefing was to try to find out if there was any significance to the almost alarming increase in UFO reports over the past few weeks. By the time that everyone had finished signing into the briefing room in the restricted area of the 4th Floor B Ring of the Pentagon, it was about 9.15 a.m., I started my briefing as soon as everyone was seated. I reviewed the last month's UFO activities. Then I briefly went over the more outstanding unknown UFO reports and pointed out how they were increasing in number, breaking all previous records. I also pointed out that even though the UFO subject was getting a lot of publicity, It wasn't the scare-type publicity that had accompanied the earlier flaps. In fact, much of the present publicity was anti-saucer. Then I went on to say that even though the reports we were getting were detailed and contained a great deal of good data, we still had no proof the UFOs were anything real. We could, I said prove that all UFO reports were merely the misrepresentation of known objects if we made a few assumptions. At this point, one of the colonels on General Sanford's staff stopped me. Isn't it true, he asked, that if you make a few positive assumptions instead of negative assumptions, you can just as easily prove that the UFOs are interplanetary spaceships? Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for Chapter 11, Part 2. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod, and you can contact us at AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. Do you have any UFO stories or perhaps questions for us? We would love to hear from you.